Madonna Horror Complex is an unconscious or semi-conscious categorization of like, when you meet a woman who you think is attractive, either she is an angelic, perfect, virginal, pure woman that is, is for loving but not touching on some unconscious level, or she's a whore for you to like defile and get your lustful needs met. And it's, it becomes very challenging to connect those things. It's a battle between grounded safety and shame. Because it is like this this internal tension between darkness that we that we usually try to dissociate from. Like anything that we label as dark is stuff that our ego at least thinks is not okay. Whether it's sexual perversions, fetishes or taboo desires, things that like really get certain people off. They have this kind of tension of like, I love it, but I hate that I love it. If you can get in line with it and understand why your, you know, in quote unquote, inner beast has you behave in certain ways, you can stop fighting yourself and find healthy expression. The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. All right, we are live. It is a very sunny Monday morning here in Thailand. Uh, hey, what's up to everybody who is going to log in from around the world? Uh, today we're going to speak about the sexual shadow, about darkness and sexuality. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to call this episode. I, I thought about calling it the beast in the bedroom. Um, but what we're really speaking about is overriding, we're speaking about bringing darkness, like the demonic, beastly side into, into intimacy. Um, and we're specifically going to speak about a, a, a Jungian concept called the Madonna Horror Complex. Uh, I, I think it's something that's pretty common amongst men. I know I have it. I'm going to have a personal story of recently to share about this. I think it's super common amongst millennial guys. I think it's extra common for guys who are into personal development. So if you are a millennial, into personal development, who dates women, it, it probably applies to you, at least in my experience of speaking to dudes. Basically, what the Madonna Horror Complex is, is um, an unconscious or semi-conscious categorization of like, when you meet a woman who you think is attractive, either she is um, an angelic, perfect, uh, virginal, pure woman that is, is for loving but not touching on some unconscious level, or she's a whore for you to like defile and get your lustful needs met. And it's, it becomes very challenging to connect those things. And I've, you know, I've experienced this myself. I'm gonna share about my current, my current relationship and how this has come up. But you know, I've, to, I've spoken to a lot of guys about their dating lives or sex lives. And this, this seems to come up um, where when, when a guy falls in love, he has, a tr he has trouble bringing that same beastly sexuality that he could with say a chick he met while drunk or a chick he met who he didn't really care about or like a fuck buddy or something like that. And what, what I mean, more than the sexuality piece, this touches on something that uh, aside from making your intimate sexual sex life more enjoyable um, and, and enjoyable for your partner, right? Because women crave that dark side as well. And we're going to go into the reasons for that in this episode. Um, it's also an aspect of dissociation within yourself. So if you did catch the sexual shame, dark masculine episode from, I think like six months ago or something, I spoke about the shame side of it a lot and like how it's not just about the sex piece. It's like the sex piece is kind of a highlight of what it says about what's going on in your psyche. Like you've dissociated some from part of yourself. So it becomes like this taboo desire or whatever. Um, when we're talking about specifically connecting your lust and your beastliness um, to love, I mean, if you have these two boxes when you interact with women or if you have these two feelings within yourself, then you're not really complete. Like you're missing out on something. And, you know, if you need a, an altruistic side of it, you are robbing your sexual partners of a full experience, right? Because um, there's no reason why you need to have 
uh, you know, I mean, it's not nothing about monogamy or polyamory, but like for a lot of guys who have this, it's like they can love their girlfriend, but they fantasize about women they would never want to date. And like, that's just unfortunate, right? You're just missing out on something. So um, I'm gonna let this airplane pass and take a sip of water. Mm. And a couple of announcements, but if you're watching this live, um, it seems like whenever I have a title about sexuality, that's when the people um, show up live. Uh, you know, some people watching right now, feel free to comment your questions. I'll keep you anonymous. I won't say your name when you ask questions, but I know this is a hot topic, so feel free to participate and we can go off on tangents because I have I have a lot of notes. I'm probably not even going to get to all of them. Um, I want to keep this relevant to you. Real quick announcements. Uh, last uh, last Thursday, uh, we had Christian Graugart from uh, BJJ Globetrotters on. Um, he spoke about, we spoke about martial arts and travel, but also the us versus them paradigm um, within a person's psyche. I think it's a really great episode. You could check that out, especially if you're into traveling the world and or jujitsu um, or the warrior archetype. Uh, real interesting. I, I love his philosophy. And next week, we have Jack Donovan on who wrote the book Way of Men. Um, there's a couple threads in the Masculine Underground Facebook group mentioning his work. He has some ideas that some people call controversial. I really liked his book. I'm really eager to speak with him. Um, if you're in the Masculine Underground group and you want me to ask him a specific question, uh, post that and it's the best way to get in touch with me. I'll probably start a thread in the Masculine Underground Facebook group uh, for, for questions for Jack. Um, and then um, and also tune in next week. And um, yeah, I'll say the other announcements at the end of the episode. All right, so um, darkness and sexuality. So I actually just posted something to the Masculine Underground group. I'm asking guys what they thought or what can't, comes up when you think about bringing your darkness into sexuality. And a few people mentioned shame and someone uh, wrote a sentence that I thought really encapsulated this beautifully. He said, it's a battle between grounded safety and shame. And, and uh, we're going to go into like the archetypal side and the biological side um, in this episode. But that sentence really put it beautifully. So shout out to, to you. You know who you are. Because um, it is like this, this internal tension between darkness that we, that we usually try to dissociate from. Like anything that we, we label as dark is stuff that our ego at least thinks is not okay. So it's like, oh, it's in the dark, right? We don't really want to look at it. And then there's the light side. This tension is ne necessary. And if you look at a lot of sexual whether it's sexual perversions or, uh, you know, fetishes or taboo desires, things that like really get certain people off. They have this kind of tension of like, I love it, but I hate that I love it. And you see this on both sides. Like women have this, I think, even more than men sometimes, especially in the, you know, in the in the current feminist age. There's all these women who believe in like, uh, you know, female power, female empowerment, but when they're in the bedroom, they want to be humiliated or they want to be spanked or they want to have a collar around them or something like that, right? There's this, there's this tension, like that tension, um, as, as stated in Jack Marin's book, The Erotic Mind, um, what does he call it? Uh, ambivalence is one of, the, like, one of the core aspects of sexuality. So we're going to go into why this is, uh, starting with, uh, with biology, because I, I mean, when it comes to all of these psychological concepts, it's really easy to get lost in constructs, especially if you have a certain political ideology or leaning. A lot of people try to incept their, their rational ideologies to explain things. I think a lot of the ridiculous like, gender politics discussions come from that. Um, I like to ground things in biology because we could see how we've evolved and without judgment, we can see why we have certain behaviors. This is not to say that we should act always in, in line with our genes expression. Um, but at least not, not, not trying to override it or ignore the fact that we are animals and we evolve for, to have certain mechanisms. They're not always pleasant, 
Um, sometimes they even go against our own well-being. But if you can get in line with it and understand why your, you know, in quote unquote, inner beast has you behave in certain ways, you can stop fighting yourself and find healthy expression. So in this episode, we're going to speak about the biological side. We're going to switch to the kind of Jungian interpretation of biology. And I'm going to end with a couple um, practical applications of all this. Um, uh, okay. And we just got a good question. I'm actually going to probably save till the end. How to open uh, to a woman? How to open a woman to her darker side without being creepy? All right, thank you for that question. I'm going to get to that at the practical apps at the end. Um, and anyone who's just joining, feel free to ask your questions in the comments or comment anything. I will not say your name, uh, obviously, so you can stay anonymous. Uh, the only people who see your names are the people who are, are also on the live. Okay. Um, let me make sure I didn't miss anything in the intro. I was actually going to call this episode Monsters Holding Bitches because of the Instagram uh, account. You may have seen it. It's basically a bunch of um, uh, paintings and drawings and cartoons of like grotesque monsters holding beautiful women because I think that uh, describes the archetypal side of, of this episode. And I actually think one of the reasons why that Instagram uh, account is so popular, both with men and women, is that it does touch on this like dark sexuality piece between males and females that often gets unexpressed because people associate uh, that kind of thing with bad things, with violence. Um, all right, so darks and sexuality. Do I need to say a caveat? I just want to say this just, just in case. I, I get, I'm getting trolled at a higher volume these days. Um, just in case any feminist or social justice warrior takes one sentence I say out of context, I'm just going to say this now. This is not a prescription for anyone to do anything violent or harm anyone in any way. The point of this episode is to help people find healthy, safe, consensual expressions of their darkness for mutual fulfillment, right? So, like, I might say something that sounds bad out of context, so please, you know, just, you know, don't do that <laughs> or whatever. I don't care. Um <clears throat> Okay, and the purpose of this, oh yeah, is to have better intimacy, but also, is, I, mean, I just want to say this again because it's really important, is not just about having good sex, or rather the good sex or complete sex is a, almost like a byproduct or like a, like a true north goal for completion of your psyche, of actually able to bring your entire self into intimacy. Um, or into life, really, because if you if you have this association, this Madonna whore thing, even if you're not interacting with women, you're, you're basically having two versions of yourself in your interactions, which is kind of the root of nice guy syndrome. Um, yeah. All right. So, OK, I'm going to take a sip of water and then. All right. Excuse me. So this came up for me last week. And the reason why I want to make this episode now is I'm in a new relationship. I'm madly in love. Uh, I, I mean, I could say a lot of other things, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell that story in another episode. But we've been long distance for the last few months, and we've been texting and, and messaging a lot, and it's been really lovely, and I and I feel like my heart's really open. But she called me out on something last week in that like she'll text she's texted me sexy things or or flirty things sometimes you know yeah things of that nature. And she called me out on how I, I haven't really reciprocated with the, the same level of feeling. And at first I was like, whoa, I mean, shit. Like, I didn't realize I was, I was, I was semi-conscious I was doing that. I've known, I've even told her, like, my whole life, uh, my whole sexual life, I've ha I definitely have had this Madonna horror categorization. Like, the types of women I would hook up with were a little bit different than types of women that I would date. And um, especially when I would fall, like, I, I mean, I've gotten a lot out of the BDSM world of like accessing my darker nature, 
but I've had a, a little harder time accessing it with women once I fell in love with them. Right, that's like the essence of the Madonna horror complex. Like it's uh, yeah, the level of vulnerability it takes to go into dark mode with someone who I love, or like the level of vulnerability of like bringing all of my lust or carnal desire with someone who I really care about, like would kind of like freak me out. And then even in this current relationship where I'm, I'm the most evolved and most secure I've ever been to this point, which is true of all of us, I'm sure. Um, I was, I was having a trouble, like, you know, she would send me something sexy and I want to send her something sexy back. But like, there was like some block, like it was like, I was cutting off, like I couldn't access the sex part. And I would think, you know, and this is uh, you know, kind of a sad thing for me because like, or a sad moment when I would think about it, because like, if I didn't love her, if I didn't like, have all of this respect and care for her, it'd probably be really, I mean, it would be really easy, right? It's not like I've never done this. In fact, if I, if I looked at my life, there's certain women who I've, I've, certain lovers I've had who've, I could really go dark, right? Like I could really go into that powerful, lustful, control her body, uh, control her mind, like, like, I mean, within consent, right? Not, not being an asshole, but it was like actually a couple of women I've thought of who like, I kind of didn't even like their personalities. In fact, I'd even go, I mean, I'll just admit this, right? Like I kind of, I kind of uh, had disdain for them or contempt in some way. Like I just didn't respect them or I thought they were, I just didn't, I didn't like them, but I was physically attracted. And with, in those, in those interactions, I could go so deep into like the dark archetype. I could go so beastly. I could so like, so powerfully in a way that was also enjoyable to her, right? Like I could just take control of her body and get her to do things. And it's like super hot and sexy and blah, blah, blah. And of course, after the sexual interaction, I'm like, shit, what am I doing here? It's like kind of like the Seinfeld episode where his brain and his penis are in a battle. But it's like, I don't want to live like that, right? Like I don't want to, it's fun for expression, but like I don't want to go the rest of my life having these two categories of me and not being able to bring all of that fun, which is really fun into my love relationship. Like I don't want to have those separation, that separation I was thinking about <clears throat> with, my, with my partner. Bef like, uh, I mean, I've, I think she's really hot and I, you know, I, I do think she's beautiful. But like, so why is it that, I mean, and I, I mean, I'm obviously sexually attracted to her, why is it that I won't let myself go there? And, and um, so I want, I explore this. I spent like the entire afternoon after like thinking about this, because to be honest, there was also like an ego uh, hit, you know, just the fact that I wasn't able to bring it, you know, even in, even in text, like she, she was, she, she said in a very like loving and sweet way <clears throat> and supportive way, but she was basically like, I'm, I'm bringing this, like this desire to you and you're not, you're not bringing it back, which of course to my male ego is like, ah, you know, I, I don't want to ever not be enough for a woman. So I, I spent the afternoon, like I need to like really explore this. Um, so yeah, I was thinking about like, okay, with women who I don't love, I can go into this place because, because of maybe the fact that I don't respect them. I, I know this sounds bad, but you know, I'm, I'm being honest, right? Like, because I don't have like real respect, or I don't care what they think I can, I I'm willing to risk going completely red, like in the sense of like, um, like in, in, in Tantra or in, in Western uh, occultism, like the, the idea of red and white is like the up and down, like white is like the angelic loving, like white Tantra isn't really, uh, doesn't even like engage with sexuality so much, whereas red is like the carnal side, right? So like, if you ever read anything about Western occultism, they'll mention the red and the white, like the white is like the expanses, uh, expansive up, the red is like the dark carnal blood magic, if you will. I mean, these are, these are conceptual concepts. So like, all right, so how do I connect these things? Because within my relationship, I don't want to withhold something. I don't, I don't want to, you know, we're monogamous. I don't want to have to like 
I want to bring everything, you know, I want to experience everything with her. But so this is something where I recognize as a point of uh, a point of growth or something I wanted to unlock. So I went all the way back to the beginning. I'm going to share about how I overcame this later in this episode. But I went all the way back to the beginning of like exploring, like, why is this? So let's, we got to start with biology here. All right, with nature. Nature of sexuality. I, I, know, I know some people don't like science, so I'm going to run through the, the figures. Because, but anyway, sexuality uh, first uh, showed up on Earth 1.2 billion years ago. Um, circuit 2, the limbic system, the emotional territorial nervous system evolved in life 500 million years ago. The reason circuit or the, 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 what would eventually become like the part of the nervous system that leads to humans' ability to reason um, or uh, like our ego essentially, some version of that, a proto, like a proto ego, I guess you could say, evolved um, four to five million years ago. And only 30,000 years ago did human consciousness as we know it with the sense of morality evolve 30,000 years ago. So I'm throwing these numbers out just to show like throughout, you know, the evolution of life, this idea of morality or like the, ty the type of ego thinking of separating good versus evil and like putting things into categories is like this, this much of like of, of how long humans or how long life has existed, right? Or uh, compared to how long sexuality has existed. So what this tells us is that you know, the, the coding, right, the, the information that drives our sexuality and our sexual, sexual behavior and our lust and our unconscious and our desires. And especially when we like, when you wonder, like, why am I into this weird sexual thing that has, goes totally against my beliefs? Or like a Christian person's like, why do I want to do these things that God thinks is bad? Or a racist person thinks like, why do I have jungle fever when I, like, my ego doesn't like this type of person? It's because our sexuality existed for Billions of years, not even millions, billions. I mean, the coding that drives our, our sexual programming, that, that, that code, if you will, has existed for many, 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 many times before our egos could discern things. So going all the way back to, I mean, nature is metal, right? It's, it's another Instagram account I like. If you've ever seen it or like there's also a subreddit. It's basically nature, it's showing nature like just like nasty things in nature, like uh, you know, whether it's eating or even sex. Uh, nature is, isn't kind, right? Like we like to, our human minds like to think like, oh, everything should be fair and put things into boxes and uh, everything should be structured and ordered. But that's not how nature is, right? That, that's a very human, uh, a human, it's like almost human arrogance to think that things should be fair. Nature is not fair. If you look at any nature show, planet Earth, whatever, like you see some gnarly things, right? Same thing in, in, um, same thing in, in sexuality, actually, especially sexuality. Uh, mating is not pretty. Uh, lots of animals rape each other. Um, actually, I mean, if you've ever, I mean, you might have heard these figures, but like, um, or these, I, this, uh, these facts, like bed bugs, uh, bed bugs um, mate through p puncturing a hole into the female. Like there is no, there's no like vagina for bed bugs. Like they actually like stab each other. You may have also heard like cats have to bleed in order to um, in order to procreate, like the, the cat penis has barbs on it that tear open uh, a, a hole in, in the cat's vulva and like only through there can like insemination occur, um, which is, I mean, if you ever heard cats have sex, it kind of sounds like pain at the same time. I mean, that, that's like, that's not even, that, that's how they're supposed to mate. And actually, I might have told the story before in old episodes, so if you've listened to the podcast for a while, uh, sorry, you've heard this already, maybe, but when I was... Um, when I was in college, I had these betta fish. Betta fish are like these fighting fish. They, 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 have, um, they, have, they have personalities. I really liked my betta fish. 
And at a male betta fish, they, they look, I mean, he's, he's, they, they, look, they look like little lions almost. And he started doing this mating ritual where he started building a nest in his, um, in his tank. And, you know, I had a lot of, uh, had a lot of affection for my betta fish. I was like, oh, he wants a mate. He's like making a bubble nest. Let me go out and buy a female. So I went to the pet store. I got, our female, I got him a female betta fish, put the female in, and he just beat the crap out of her. Like, he was just, like, chasing her around, like, biting at her fins. She actually jumped out of the tank a few times because um, she was getting beaten up so bad. And, and betta fish can breathe air so they could survive. So like, she jumped out of the tank a few times. Like, I saw her jump out of the tank. Like, she was getting torn up. I was like... And I found out, I, I only Googled it afterwards, that this is actually how betta fish mate. The way betta fish mate is that the male chases around the female until she's exhausted. Then he wraps his body around her. He crushes her body, crushes her spine sometimes, sometimes killing her, so that he can squeeze the eggs out of her body. Then he takes the eggs and he inseminates them. Like, that's, that's like their normal mating strategy, right? This is how they were designed, you know, or that, this is how they evolved, right? This is what sex is like in the animal kingdom sometimes. Just to finish the story, um, my, my roommate also got a betta fish. He had a male betta fish. And um, I put the female betta in its own cup because I was like, I was like, all right, this, I, I can't, I want them to mate, but like, this just seems cruel to the female. So I put her in a little, I put her in a little glass just like this. Um, I, and I put, them, um, I put her on my roommate's desk um, next to his male betta. And my female betta was so pissed off, I guess, from getting beaten up by my male betta that she jumped out of the cup into my roommate's fish's bowl and and killed his male beta like that's that's nature right these are little animals um <laughs> meanwhile i just wanted them to mate so uh and i'm going to switch gears for a second because uh, i've been reading this book on um uh, chaos magic which uh, if you're not into that if that whole like mystical language sound, it turns you off one interpretation of it is just it's like it's just kind of just like jungian psychology of a way to access parts of your unconscious that are hard to tinker with, right? Like a lot of the, the symbolism in like magical language is, is essentially an attempt to um, play with like feelings and characters and symbols in your unconscious that are hard to identify consciously. Anyway, um, he speaks a lot about like creation of reality and, and using sexuality and stuff. I'm not going to get into that in this episode, but um, uh, essentially he was like, the only way you can be fully complete is to accept both the light and the dark. And in sexuality, this is especially true. And he would speak about like different sexual uh, rights. And I'm going to read some quotes from his, um, should I just save it here? Because, so the thing to understand with the, the darkness and sexuality is that in nature, there is light and dark. In fact, I mean, in nature doesn't differentiate between these two things. A lot of our impulses, even though we are very different than beta fish, obviously we're, we're very, um, we're much more evolved than beta fish or, or most animals consciously our sexual mechanisms still run on this very nature is metal programming, right? So like, I'm not saying that people should rape each other or anything like that, but it's understandable why these, these impulses exist, why, um, why they exist because they're part of our unconscious. And forget about sex for a second. The, the reason why this is important, and this, this is like Carl Jung has this perspective as well, the reason why we have to integrate the shadow, right? Because what is the shadow? The shadow is a part of our unconscious that we have, our, our, our ego has deemed as not good, right? Whether it's sexual or, or violent or whatever, or, or, or you know, if you, grew up in a, if you grew up in a racist community that says, oh, people, people that look like this are bad, that, that's your ego, but your unconscious is still going to be attracted to those people, right? Your, your unconscious, your sexual... The sexual part of your psyche, the sexual part of your nervous system doesn't give a shit about 
what your society tells you. It, it doesn't even process that, right? Like our sexual behavior, our emotional behavior. I mean, the reason why I call it the beast sometimes, or some people call it the beast is that essentially the part of your nervous system without your ego or without your prefrontal cortex is, is similar to that of a dog, right? Dogs don't care about what type of dog. They don't, they don't, they don't think about, like, oh, this is a good desire. This is a bad desire. It's like, oh, this makes me horny. I'm going to go for it. Or this makes me, this, I feel, this is satisfying to my senses. I'm going to go for it. Um, so I do want to read this bit from Peter Carroll of um, <clears throat> in order to be complete as a person, you need to be willing to accept all of these parts of you, even the stuff that your ego deems as dark or evil or, or uh, against God's will. We're going to talk about belief in a second. So uh, one of the things, uh, one of the quotes I highlighted from his book, all attempts to reorganize the mind involve a duality between conditions as they are in the preferred condition. Thus, it is impossible to cultivate any virtue like spontaneity, joy, piousness, pride, grace, or omnipotence without involving oneself in more conventionality, sorrow, guilt, sin, and impotence in the process. High magic, or I'm translating that to self-mastery, recognize the dualistic condition but does not care whether life is bittersweet or sweet or sour. Rather, it seeks to achieve any arbitrary per perceptual perspective at will which I interpret to mean uh, in order to be a complete human who has mastery over himself and his reality, you need to accept all the parts, right? You have this weird uh, sexual proclivity. You have to at least accept it. And we're going to talk about expression in a second. Uh, he also says uh, a lot of his book is about accepting the duality of nature, which for, for our ego's perspective, our morals perspective is good and evil. Duality describes humanity's usual condition. Happiness only exists because of misery and pain. Comfort because of uh, pain. Oh, sorry. Happiness, happiness only exists because of misery, pain because of discomfort, good because of evil, gang because of in, yin, black because of white, birth because of death, and existence because of non-existence. All phenomena must be paired as senses are only equipped to perceive differences. The thinking mind has the property of splitting everything it encounters into two as it is a dualistic thing in itself. That's Peter Carroll. And the last quote I'll read from him. Liberating behavior is that which increases one's possibilities for future action. The solution is to become omnivorous. Someone who can think, believe, or do any half a dozen things is more free and liberated than someone confined to only one activity. Energy is liberated when an individual breaks through rules of conditioning with some glorious act of disobedience or blasphemy. Which is, uh, if, you, if you caught my episode with Nicole Brenny on Psychomagic, she speaks about why, uh, why like occult rituals are always weird. Like They always involve something that's kind of gross or something like really stimulating or taboo because that kind of shatters the conception of the mind. And in fact, that's one, one argument for why um, ancient peoples or some certain, uh, certain cultures involved, um, did things like human sacrifice. It's like that kind of act is so jarring to the ego that it, it, it puts you into a, an altered state of consciousness where you can now incept different things. What, what back then they might call spells, but now we could call uh, auto-suggestion. I mean, even church nowadays... Is, is a sense of ritualized, uh, ritualized brainwashing, hopefully for good, right? I'm not, I'm not anti-religion. Um, when it's done well, it gets people to be, basically hypnotizes people to be better people, hopefully more confident and loving and all that stuff. Um, so sex requires both light and dark. And the, the um, enemy of integration on this level is typically people's ego morality. Um, so going back to my example or the Madonna whore complex, the reason why we categorize Madonna and whore is because of uh, some sort of societal upbringing, um, some sort of conditioning made us think that, oh, sex can't go with angels, right? Uh, I, one, one could assume or we could do a thought experiment like someone who grows up in a, 
the culture that doesn't bring that kind of shame or doesn't doesn't separate sexuality or doesn't separate uh, natural animal impulses from what is okay might not even see you know might not even see sex as a dark thing it's like oh yeah i mean spanking a woman or doing all these things that seem dark to us in our kind of christian influence culture um that seems bad isn't going to be bad to such a person um so i want to say before we go into sexual archetypes and application um oh sorry all right um i do want to talk about the five stages of belief as uh, as portrayed by peter carroll because i think this does explain a lot of our psychological assumptions by us i mean uh, our society. And he goes through different stages that humans have gone through. The first being the pagan, shamanist, uh, shamanic, animist uh, belief system. So if you look at ancient cultures, um, prior to monotheism, that was more of the norm throughout the world, whether in South America or Asia or uh, the European, uh, European peoples. Uh, most of these peoples came up with some, some version of belief that um, gave intelligence or spirits to things right or shintoism animism shamanism it's all the same thing like there's a spirit of the wolf there's a spirit of the sun there's a spirit of trees and the reason and if you look at this from a rational perspective it makes sense like um as as humans were the first animals on earth as far as we know um or one of the first animal the first land animals as far as we know to be able to become conscious and be like wow like life is amazing right like we, we we evolved past just being behavior robots and being like, wow, like the sun comes up every morning. That's incredible. It warms us. Like it's it's understandable why someone with no technological understanding would deify something like that, right? And 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 maybe being a human and perceiving the world through the eyes of people and personalities might think like, oh, there must be a sun god that wants this to happen for this to happen, right? If you look at all of these polythe polytheistic religions, they have this kind of idea, and, and Carol explains this as, um, I mean, to summarize this belief system, this type of belief is that um, what is good and evil are the, are the desires of these, rant, these gods, but the gods don't all, um, all agree. Like if you look at um, Greek mythology, uh, there's many different gods. They're very humanistic. Uh, the gods often disagree, right? So like what the god of war wants might go directly against what the god of love wants. So as a human being trying to appease these forces of nature, well, let's try to like appease everyone. Like, but, but sometimes there are moments where what the god of war wants goes directly against what the god of love and you kind of have to, you have to kind of play all these personalities. That's like how most shamanic, animistic, uh, pagan cultures perceive the world of like, we're kind of just trying to appease all of the gods and like, there is no like one absolute sense of morality uh, as far as the gods are concerned. So they had kind of like a, a practical view of morality, right? I mean, they, they, what they consider, what, their version of morality isn't, doesn't really fit ours because most of first world, uh, 21st century society believes in some way that there is an overarching uh, morality because of the stage two, which is monotheism. When monotheism came on the scene, monotheism said, there is one God, or there's one absolute God. Our God is the absolute God, or whatever you call it. And what he wants is good, and what he doesn't want is evil. Oh, my mic just dropped uh, unintentionally. So, um, so like, I mean, the word good comes from the word God. And the word evil relates to the word devil. I mean, devil, evil, good, God. Right, and even though in, in modern society, we're not, we're, I mean, there's a separation of church and state. You know, Christianity doesn't directly dominate, or like monotheism doesn't directly dominate uh, society anymore, uh, at least explicitly, um, a lot of our psychological assumptions come from our spiritual assumptions, and we still, for the most part, run on monotheistic 
um, assumptions. Uh, James Hillman, the Jungian psychologist, had a great essay on this. I mean, he was speaking about how most of psychology is still based on Freud's ideas. I mean, Freud was the, you know, not taken away from Freud. He was the first person to really push, uh, push forward uh, the idea of psychology. Um, but Freud, even though Freud was an atheist, Freud grew up in a monotheistic society. Freud grew up in a, in a world that believed in, I mean, in a Christian world. I mean, even though he was Jewish. I mean, he's still monotheistic society and monotheistic assumptions. So his branch of psychology has like a mono, like his, his, his uh, model of the mind, like his, you know, ego, id, superego, um, is kind of like a holy trinity. Like his, his, just his, his assumption that there is one, one connection um, is kind of a monotheistic assumption. Whereas if you look at Jungian psychology, um, which I think, I mean, one of the reasons why it was probably less popular is that it had kind of pagan polytheistic assumptions where like where there is not just one ego and id, we're made up of all these archetypes, which is which kind of uh, which correlates with like a polytheistic religion, whereas like there's all these different things. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, paganism and Jungian psychology has become a lot more popular nowadays because I, I think a lot of people are finding that this is a better way of looking at, at yourself. Right. Especially when you have internal conflict. Well, there's a part of you that wants to fuck shit up, there's a part of you that wants to be a good boy, and like they, they hit on each other sometimes, just like the god of war and the god of love sometimes get into fights. On the next level uh, is uh, atheism, which is where we are now, which looks at everything as cause and effect, even though we a lot, a lot of us have monotheistic assumptions about reality. The next, uh, I mean, it basically, it was, atheism was you know a shift into rationalism and, and the scientific method, and viewing everything as cause and effect. This led to nihilism because uh, if you look at everything as as hows and cause and effect, you can start to notice that there is no why, right? Science can explain the how of everything, but there is no why explanation, which to the human mind kind of leaves kind of an empty feeling to some people, not all people. Like if you look at Neil deGrasse Tyson or even Richard Dawkins, like those kind of atheists, their their branch of atheism is like like look, there's nothing. We don't need to believe in gods because life in itself is like so amazing. Look at the the fact that we we can ex explain the universe is so amazing. I mean Einstein's quote. I mean I forget how what the words were, but uh, nihilism. Uh, Peter Carroll calls late atheism because there's no wise, which then led to chaosism, which is kind of his branch of thinking, which is accepting the duality, um, the statement as above, uh, so below. Um, and uh, it's kind of like almost a return to shamanistic or, or pagan atheist viewpoints of like of accepting everything. Everything is permitted, which is why when I mean, you look at Western occultism, especially there's a lot of grotesque um, imagery like, you know, demons and devils. And if you look at monsters holding bitches, like that's kind of it, like this taboo of like carnality uh, and sexuality is like reclaimed as something that was dissociated by monotheism, which put everything into good versus evil boxes or Madonna whore boxes. And then finally, I mean, this is not super relevant, but to our conversation, but just to finish it, the sixth a branch of thought is like a return to superstition. So you can see this in like the hippie side of the self-help community where it's somewhat of a return to um, shamanic or animist or, or, or uh, pagan uh, symbols of like, uh, I mean, uh, Carol calls this low chaosism where people just like make random causes and effects. So like a lot of like divination of seeking uh, I'm not even, I'm not saying this is good or bad, but people who like seek tarot cards for advice and stuff. I mean, that kind of superstition is like an, an, the next interpretation. And in his view, we are going to return to a more animist or paganist. And actually Jungian psychology is kind of returned to that kind of polytheist, polytheistic view. Okay. All right. So we're going to bring this back to sexuality. I know I went off on a little, uh, a little uh, bit of a tangent there, but flirting, 
um, sexuality, because of all of this, because of these uh, underlying uh, where we evolve from, um, sexuality is necessarily transgressive. Flirting, anytime something is considered flirting, there's a little bit of, there's like a, a, always a sense of violation. And someone who flirts well is someone who can sense where it's okay to cross the line where it's not going into the point of uh, violation. Like if you look at, um, I mean, if you're flirting with someone and like her jaw drops but she laughs, that's kind of a sign of like you, you hit just the spot where it's a little bit transgressive but not violation. And my, my very favorite movie scene of flirting or energetic penetration is in the movie Eyes Wide Shut, which I realize is a pretty old film now. I guess it's like 20 years old with Nicole Kinnaman and um, Tom Cruise where there's a scene where they're at some party, like one of those like masquerade weird things, and um, a guy takes Nicole Kidman's champagne glass and drinks it really slowly while looking at her. And her jaw drops because like she doesn't know him. Like, he just took her glass and drank. And I love this example because if you look, if you, if you like YouTube uh, movie flirtations, you see a lot of Ryan Gosling saying stuff. And I think for specifically analytical guys who are trying to understand this, they get too caught up on the words. I love this eyes wide shut scene because there's no words, right? Just through his actions, he kind of invaded her space, but invaded it just enough where there's a lot of tension. Like, oh, I can't believe you just did that. But it wasn't so much that she felt like she had to run away, which is, you know, if it, this is kind of the light and dark tension of like stepping in and almost violation without, without um, actually causing a lack of safety. Going back to the quote that someone commented in the Masculine Underground thread of like, Darkness and sexuality is a battle between grounded safety and shame. Like this, this, this tension is what makes it hot. Um, because there is an emotional logic. I know emotional logic is an oxymoron, but there's an emotional logic to flirting and sexuality and human sexuality where, um, I mean, to use the, just a male-female paradigm or uh, perspective, um, women are typically in, a, in a, when you're in the feminine, you're kind of in a prey, prey mode. Like two weeks ago, we spoke about the warrior archetype, predators and prey archetypes. Um, a woman wants to know that you're strong enough to take her, right? If you don't sh demonstrate that, that willingness to err on the side of failure, right? Because the failure in, in, a, in a society like this could be a slap in the face. It could be if you really do something bad, uh, you know, ostracization, I think, in, in today's Me Too society. The stakes are a little bit higher, actually. Like what, what was considered okay in the 1950s, spanking your secretary, secretary, definitely not okay now. I'm not saying that we should return to that. Um, but... You know, the, the line has changed a lot. And I think now more than ever, a lot of guys are extremely ex uh, afraid of airing on that. And this, there's actually another thread in the Masculine Underground group about this. I actually think if you can really understand this, right, like there's certain new challenges that are the previous generation didn't have to face as, as men who date women. If you can really understand how all of this works, it's actually a great opportunity to rise above the chaff because... Um, more now than ever, I think, because of Me Too, because of uh, you know second and third wave and fourth wave feminism, women are actually more frustrated than ever. And this is this is back to that that tension or that dichotomy of uh, you know uh, you know women, of course, want to be respected in in uh, in um, in the workplace or in regular social situations, but in, in bed, which is ruled by these uh, pre prehistoric. Um, nervous system mechanisms these that we've evolved for requires that kind of violation or the sense of danger like there has to be a bit of transgression otherwise she's not going to trust you to be strong enough to take care of her or to protect her when she's pregnant right this is this is all pre-conscious stuff um and um but at the same time that of course like if she thinks she, you're gonna murder her <laughs> then that then that's not also not effective because uh you know 
being with a guy who's powerful and willing to go to those measures, willing to be violent and transgressive, is an effective mating strategy to the woman, right? Um, if you, if you, I mean, if you've been following me a while, I, I put out this article a year and a half ago called "The Devil's Inside of Us," and I spoke like I really analyzed the rape fantasy uh, in particular. I'm not going to repeat all of that, um, but uh, essentially, like. In, in that article I shared about how Marie-Louise von Franz, who's a Jungian psychologist, one of Jung's protégés, shared that women tend to have gang rape fantasies, right? Like, men might fantasize about having a lot of women, right? A lot of, like, every, every adolescent wet dream is, like, to have a harem or something like that. But women will, will fantasize about rape, and it's not just women who've been raped. I mean, there's a, there's a theory that women who've been raped will fantasize about rape kind of as a catharsis or to revisit the experience in a way that she can experience pleasure and reclaim her sense of safety. And then that's, that's true. But a lot of women have rape fantasies who've never been raped. And a lot of women have gang rape fantasies in particular. And uh, von Franz's uh, um, theory is that the reason why this is, is that uh, the woman's animus or masculine side is impersonal. Like where a man's anima tends to map to his, to his mom, like your anima tends to be similar to your mom's personality, which, which relates to the Madonna whore complex, which we're going to return to in a second. But women seem to not have that for whatever reason. Like a woman's animus doesn't necessarily take after her dad. A woman's animus is impersonal. So uh, von Franz's theory is that women will have gang rape fantasies. Many women or some women will have gang rape fantasies because that's like her, her, her vision of what men are like are, is kind of like these faceless horde of guys with hard dicks. I would actually add to, I mean, my addition to this, I don't disagree with that, is that on, on a, on a pre-conscious level, even though to actually be gang raped, like actually be violated in that way, probably is a terrible, I mean, not probably, is a terrible, unpleasant experience to, to any woman or any person in such a situation. However, and I know this is a controversial statement, it is an effective mating strategy, right? Even though her mind might think this is a terrible experience, her genes maybe program her to put herself in situations like that because, and again, I'm not saying that people, women should do this or anyone should do this, but from her genes perspective, her genes want to collect the best quality sperm to uh, best quality sperm of strong men. Uh, that's kind of like a good way to do it. Like the should get a bunch of dominant male sperm and the best ones, ideally the alpha male is what, what's going to inseminate her and she'll have the healthiest offspring. I know it's a dark thing to say, but these things are dark. And this is, re a, you know, this is an understanding of why women will have rape fantasies while why men will have rape fantasies. Because you almost never, well, I should say this, like uh, power and sexuality are tied. Like there's the Oscar Wilde quote, um, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. This is one explanation for it. So um, last thing I'll say, I spent a little bit longer on the biology stuff than I meant to. Um, Procreation and consummation go together. And, um, well, I'll say this. Um, any, any group that, any uh, school of thought that deals with sexuality also tends to deal with um, carnality. And, like, you, you mean the word carnality. Like, when you think of the word carnal, you think, I mean, the word car carnal comes from meats, like carne, carne asada, you know, or whatever, um, carnivore. Uh, and then carnality, we, we think of sexuality. There's something of, like, the consummation of flesh that inherently is in our unconscious connection to sexuality. This is a, just a random thing. I, when I was in the sex cults, it obviously was a spiritual organization. I had dabbled in other spiritual organizations before. One thing that kind of turned me off is that they're always vegan. Like every like yoga ashram, they're vegan. Anyone who sits and meditates for a long time, they tend to be vegan. Uh, you know, they because they, they go very far into that love and light white stuff, right? Like, oh, all beings are sacred. You should never take a life. Blah blah blah. 
But one taste, my sex cult, even though they were very spiritual and believed in consciousness and all that stuff, um, they actually would tell people to eat meat a lot. Like there was a lot of like vegans, like spiritual vegans who would show up to classes. And my, I remember my cult mom telling like these hippie guys, like, you got to start eating meat. You got to start. I mean, <laughs> she would tell me, tell those guys to go watch football with me because like they had to get in touch with that, that dark, competitive, zero sum, dog eat dog feeling in order to access their sexuality. Um, because there is, I mean, yeah, anyway, monsters holding bitches. That's the reason why, you know, like the King Kong thing is like a, the King Kong uh, visual or sim symbolism is kind of an extreme of his monsters holding bitches, right? It's like this, like the, the, the male in, in the King Kong uh, movie is not beautiful, right? But he's a brute. He's a gorilla. Not only is he a gorilla, he's a giant gorilla. And what does the King Kong do in, in, in the 1950s version of the movie, at least? Uh, he grabs a beautiful woman who's now naked and helpless, right? There's that, that, that symbolism is what a lot of our genetic expression knows is, a, is, a, is a, an effective mating strategy, right? I'm not, again, I'm not saying that rape is a good thing or anything like that, but there's a reason why this happens. And actually going to um, the war brides theory, which I, I'm getting from Rolo Tomasi's uh, The Rational Male, one, one of the things in his book that I, I found really like, man, like, it is, I mean, I kind of get why so many red pill guys have this very dismal view of, of sexuality because the war brides thing is, is true. Like war brides is essentially, um, I, I don't know if you call it a phenomenon, but the, the, the situation where uh, a, 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 a horde of barbarians would come in and kill all the males of a certain agrarian society. They would rape all the women. They would claim them as their concubines. And then those women who just had her sons, her brothers, her fathers, her uncle, her husband murdered by this new man would fall in love with that man. And it was it's something that's been documented through history. It's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, Rolo Tomasi calls it war brides. I don't know if he made up that term. But uh, it's a phenomenon which, which if, you know, if you think like, oh, what if I just got killed? My wife is going to fall in love with the guy who kills me. That's a really dark way to look. And it makes, you know, it can make it just realizing it can be kind of sad or like depressing when you think about it. But it is an effective mating strategy, right? All of this, like, all of like, everything that we from our ego considers dark comes down to our genes desire to procreate and survive and replicate even at our expense. Anyway, I'll, I'll end that section on that. Moving into the like, applications and sexual archetypes, it's not that we want to necessarily do that. Again, I'm not saying that we should be violent or hurt people or rape or be raped or anything like that. Is that in order for us to have full expression, we need to be able to access that. And even though we don't, like no woman wants to literally be violated or harmed or raped, but those, those, uh, those ideas tend to be exciting because of these billions of years of evolution where that is how life on Earth furthered. Which is, and we have all these reward systems in us, us just, just like in the way that we are, we are all drawn to eating sugar, even though nowadays with all of our um, artificial foods, like really liking sugar is not actually good for you. Like really liking sugar is going to make you obese and die young. But for our pre-agricultural ancestors, liking sugar was a great thing because anytime you saw blueberries, you better eat all the blueberries. It's like a great source of micronutrients. Kind of the same thing, uh, you know, uh, we have this mechanism to like violence and like darkness and sexuality and we get this emotional and pleasure-filled reward from it, even though we don't literally want to go around raping and pillaging or being raped or whatever like that. Um, but this is why, where it comes from. So the question becomes, how do I integrate this without actually harming people? Because when I speaking to guys or coaching guys about their sexuality and a lot of guys have an issue even expressing in a, in a, in a private Zoom call with me, a lot of guys get really nervous and uncomfortable just saying, 
something that I even think is tame. Like, oh yeah, I mean, because I, I, I try to get to, I try to get guys to at least admit to themselves the things that legitimately turn them on. And a lot of guys, what they think is dark isn't even that dark, at least in my opinion. Like, uh, I was speaking to a guy not long ago who gets really turned on about putting a collar on a woman. And he's like, oh my God, like, I'm so weird. I'm like, dude, that's, that's really not that weird. If you speak to enough women, you'll find out that a lot of women like that for the same reasons that we, we uh, explained. Okay. Um, all right, so 30,000 years ago, we evolved morality. Is, morality is a very new thing as far as life on Earth is concerned. Um, uh, and just understanding that we are behavior robots. I was going to say a thing about my animals, but I, I want to move us, move us on. Uh, and if you have any questions about what I said, feel free to drop questions. Uh, there's a disconnect between our, our emotional consciousness, our sexual consciousness, and our ego consciousness. Uh, and, and this is what causes the, the um, dissociation, which happens during the formation of our ego. Like our ego is the part of our psyche that tries to get along with the society that we're in, the reference group that we're in. Our ego is what learns the rules of our reference group, our, our sense of good and evil. If you're in a monotheistically driven society, which is even, even though we nowadays we're in an atheistic society, it's still a lot of our psychological assumptions are still monotheist in, in the sense of categorizing good and evil. Um, I mean, people still always, like most people, if you ask them, probably believe that there is an absolute good and evil, whether or not we can tell what it is. This is not good for your sexuality. This is not good for your sexual expression. This is what causes the Madonna horror separation. Um, and then I, I'm not going to go into the whole shame piece because I did a whole episode on that a few months ago on the dark masculine. But shame is this. This shame is like this part of like, I need to cut off parts of myself in order to get along with what my reference group believes is true. And this develops around, this develops between toddlerhood and puberty. Like from when you first start learning words and learning to communicate with people um, up until around when, you're, when your sexuality develops and like parts of your uh, brain become less plastic. Um, that's where like that this this typically occurs. Not to say that you can't undo shame or undo uh, dissociation as an adult, but um, th the reason why it's kind of hard to get rid of is that your brain has actually become less plastic post puberty. Um, <clears throat> breaking free. Okay, so shame causes dissociation on three levels. One is the fear of ostracization from the group. Um, I spoke. I mean, that's I, I kind of just mentioned that. I think that should be uh, understandable. Um, this kind of comes down to really wanting to be liked. Um, I mean, it's this kind of self-help 101, but if you're trying really hard to be liked by other people, you're not being authentic. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to explain that further than that. The other place is <clears throat> the internal expression is uh, it's disconnecting from your own feelings, right? So to use just a sexual example, you have a desire to spank women, or which a lot of women desire to, but let's say that you think that's bad for some reason. You're a raised Christian. You think that, uh, you know, to, 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 want to spank women is bad, you dissociate that, you believe that's bad. So now you've, you have to numb yourself out in order to not have to feel the fact that you have that desire, right? Because desire is a feeling. So in the same way that we can't collective, and I speak about this in the sexual episodes, right? You can't, you can't selectively numb as Brene Brown says. Um, and this sexually is true, right? If you numb out a certain desire or part of yourself, you actually get less feeling in your body. And so much apathy that exists in men is because of shame, right? They start, I mean, maybe at a really young age, before you even had a concept of sexuality, you touch yourself, your mom yells at you, your dad yells at you, you're like, oh, that's bad. So anytime you feel lust, you shut down a little bit. Um, or maybe you have a desire to punch a kid because you're angry, which is not necessarily a good expression, but that, that impulse should not be um, uh, suppressed or dissociated from because if you suppress that impulse, you're literally, not literally, you're metaphorically cutting out a part of yourself. So you feel less, you are less of yourself. 
This is what cuts off the high fidelity reality, which is why when it comes to regaining your libido, high fidelity truth, like high precision, high magnitude truth is so important. Whether it's talking about sexuality or, I mean, if I, in, a, in, a, in a dark masculine episode, I spoke a lot about expressing your shame. If you can be willing to feel and express the things you're ashamed about, you get to feel it, you, get, you, you like reabsorb it into your psyche and you get to be more of yourself. And, th and then guys who can uh, do that, typically their sex drive increases, their, their creativity increases, their emotional fluidity or social fluidity increases because a lot of times when a guy has a trouble or anybody has trouble like expressing themselves or they feel muted or they can't think of what to say or they can't really feel their feelings or the sexuality is muted, it's because they've dissociated from these parts of themselves. Penetration to transgress, to flirt is a vulnerable activity because you are putting your, your when you step into someone else's territory, when you, when you penetrate someone, you are being, you, you are putting yourself out. You're literally putting yourself out in sex. Like when you enter a woman's body, you are putting yourself out emotionally when you flirt with someone or express your desire. Um, and, you know, going back to the whole Madonna thing, Madonna horror complex of like my, my, my own struggles with it. It's like with a woman I don't respect or care about, it's easy, right? I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not worried about it. But when my heart is open and I'm really feeling the, the feelings of another, of a woman I'm in love with, and I think it's true for most guys, to also put out this dark power, lustful desire, it becomes a lot scarier because now I, there's actual stakes to my heart. Um, and it's, I think it's true for everyone. And the last thing I'll say on this is like, like sexuality is vulnerable. If you caught the episode um, with Lieutenant Colonel Dan, uh, Dave Grossman, excuse me, uh, the episode on killing is one of my favorite interviews that I've done of the year. Um, in, in his book on killing, <clears throat> which is also turned into a Black Mirror episode, uh, he was speaking about how throughout history, it's been very hard for militaries to get men to stab each other, right? Slicing or slashing or bashing is a natural impulse. Like even a two-year-old, if he's mad, he might, he might just like try to bop someone on the head or he might grab something and hit another kid. Like that's a natural thing. You get angry at someone, angry enough, you might grab a pipe and swing at them. But stabbing, it has to be trained. It's very hard to get someone to stab because like penetrating someone in the body, and, and, and Grossman was speaking about how like the, the Greek phalanx or like the spearman formation was such a huge a military advancement because for the first time in human history you could get a bunch of guys like stabbing because stabbing you know in terms of physics uh, it's a lot more dangerous to stab someone because you could uh, I mean put so much more pounds per square inch uh, in a stab as opposed to a slash I mean in case you're wondering why it's different in Krav Maga uh, the Italian uh, the Italian Israeli uh, defense forces uh, martial art a lot of their training is like learning how to stab because I mean it's not a natural thing to stab someone it's like a very intimate thing to enter someone's body which is why like, there had to be all of these psychological and military advancements to get, uh, to get warriors to stab each other is because of this fear of vulnerability, right? I mean, um, in, in, before, the, before organized legions, before the phalanx uh, or the, whatever the, the Asian version of uh, the phalanx was because they had spearmen as well. Most of our military history, at least the ones that I learned, are European-based. Um, even, even if you set a guy up with spears, a lot of times they would try to swing or they would try to do something else because they just didn't want to penetrate the body. It's too intimate. So it had to be like broken. Um, so anyway, yeah, real harm comes from suppression. Oh, and the last bit is uh, dissociation from ourselves. I spoke a little about this already, but one of the fears that are dissociations uh, from, uh, you know, the person you're being intimate with, right? The main fear that comes up when I'm coaching guys about accessing their dark side excuse me, is uh, what, if I, what if I hurt someone, right? 
there is there is a danger, right? Like <clears throat> if you think about if you I mean, let's say you've been suppressing your your uh, so-called dark impulses your whole life. Anything sexual, you only express it jerking off to weird porn uh, uh, when you're at home. Anything violent, you only fantasize about in your head. You never say a mean thing to someone. That's actually what's dangerous, right? When you look at the people who actually commit these violent atrocities, very often they're not like a hothead, right? If you hear about, um, like this is not always true, I don't want to generalize like this, but like the type of people that go postal or shoot up schools, actually I don't even want to generalize about that, but I will say that we do know, at least anecdotally, I'm sure we all have experienced this internally or with other people, when someone suppresses who they are, it tends to come out eventually in a weird way. A lot of relationship fights you know, in intimate partnerships, excuse me, are driven by past traumas that weren't gone to ex, uh, be expressed. Like a woman has had an abusive boyfriend when she was a teenager, but she didn't have the the courage or confidence to call him out. Her next boyfriend, who's a really good guy to her, she lets all out, lets all her shit out, right? Let's like, it's like she finally feels safe, and then she punishes the wrong guy for things that. Ha I mean, guys do this too, right? Anyone with trauma, um, suppressing this. And not getting to express it in some way in real time is what actually causes damage to someone. Um, and I actually think, you know, just to, just to not put a... Because I think a lot of guys, when they're like muting themselves, muting their sexuality, they kind of take this like noble white knight arrogance. And I, I've experienced this too. Even, even like when, uh, even when my, my partner was saying like, oh, you're kind of withholding your sexuality. A part, my, my first response, my ego's response was, well, it's because I respect you so much, right? <clears throat> that sounds really nice from a nice guy perspective, from a white knight perspective. But it's kind of a cowardly arrogance. It's like, oh, I'm so powerful that if I let out my feelings, the world would be destroyed. Like, come on, that's, that's not really the case. In most cases, that's not, unless, unless you actually do try to shoot up a school. Hopefully, if you actually care to listen to my podcast, you're not that type of person at all. But unless you're going to do that, your beast is probably not going to cause real harm to people. In fact, all you're doing is being a coward of, of, of risking a little bit of social awkwardness or, or, or maybe a little more, more than a little bit. But you're just afraid to risk some awkwardness and you're not withholding yourself from the world because you're afraid of that kind of failure. That is not a noble thing. Uh, so I just wanted to say that uh, to just take that out of your ego of like, oh, I'm being, a good, I'm being a good guy by withholding my dark side. You're not. In fact... There's a chance you're going to do something actually bad or like, you know, when you're with a woman that you're, you're actually feeling safe with, you go a little bit too far because you have years and years of uh, withheld uh, libido, libidinous impulses. You just, yeah. And you hear that a lot also, like guy never explores his dark side, goes way too hard when he finally lets it out. So let it out now. No matter where you are, let it out now. Even if you've repressed it for a while, find a way to let it out because the healthiest way to let out your dark side is through play. And I mentioned this in the warrior archetype, I think, or might have mentioned it last week, I don't remember. Um, if you look at puppies, when puppies play with each other, they're practicing killing, right? If you look at when puppies play, like they, they, they have their mouths open, they're growling, uh, you know, for people who are cat people, um, they, they usually be like, whoa, like, look at these dogs, they're trying to kill each other. No, like they're playing and they're, they're learning how to practice going for the throat. That's literally what puppies do when they play with each other. But the thing is, they're doing it for fun. They're doing it in a way they're not hurting each other. And if you look at puppies playing with each other, the moment someone actually gets hurt and they squeal, the game's off, right? That is, the, and the reason why puppies and many animals learn to play fight is that that is a way to practice. It's also it's a way to practice learning how to kill. It's also a way to practice learning control over it because any puppy that's not socialized is the term we use for dogs. Uh, and this is probably true for humans too. Any, any animal that's not socialized doesn't know how to calibrate 
their strength, right? Like, um, and if you look at, if you, if you translate this concept of flirting or sexuality, a guy who has almost no experience with women may have a miscalibration. Like he might try to flirt and it comes off a little too strong or it comes off a little too soft. Like, but the only way to learn how to express it and find that sweet spot of penetration where you're transgressing, but not too much is through play and through practice. And if you're, if you're a guy, if you're an adult guy and you're like, oh shit, I missed out. I didn't have the, I didn't have that socialization when I was young. That's okay. Because as humans, we can create those experiences for ourselves again. Um, but the, but the, I'll end this uh, subject by saying this, uh, this section before we end with, uh, with the practical applications is that you have to take your beast out for a walk, right? If you think of the sexual uh, amoral, it's not that the dark side is evil. It's just that this part of our nervous system has no concept of good and evil. Like good and evil is a very human uh, cortical idea. I mean, our sexuality is driven by our reptilian and limbic brains. Um, you have to take that part of us, which is basically an animal, you have to take it out for a walk because if you don't socialize it, if you don't find a way for it to express its impulses, then it's going to do, either it's going to do weird stuff when it does come out because the pressure is going to burst and he's going to maybe do something violent or hurtful or, or just be passive aggressive, or it's going to, um, it's going to, uh, destroy your insides, right? Like that beast is going to tear up your, your home if you don't let it out, right? Don't keep tigers in your house. And, uh, oh, and I will say, so the Madonna whore complex it's related to the mother complex. I did a whole episode on the mother complex. So I'm not going to repeat all of those things. But essentially, it's like if you think of like this good, evil, monotheistic dichotomy of like Madonna is the virgin mother, right? Um, the source of nourishment and love and pu pureness. And because sex is this bad thing, she, she's never even had a penis inside of her, Virgin Mary, you know? And then there's like the Mary Magdalene whore who is good for all that other stuff, right? This, this dissociation is uh, obviously it means a dissociation i'm gonna repeat everything um but guys who have this madonna horror and i, I mean i'll call myself out to some degree even though i've been working on it uh it, there is like this idea that you can't bring uh potency into uh into your love relationship and i don't think i well you see this in, in many people where they turn their uh partner into their mother i've, I've mentioned this in a few episodes now like it, this is it, right? And, and I know a lot of my, my guy friends, we talk about this is like, uh, you know, especially guys I know who are in open relationships, which I'm not against. I've been in, I've done that a lot. Um, a lot of my guy friends who are in open relationships will share like, yeah, part of why I'm in an open relationship is like, I can't seem to access that, that powerful sexuality with my love partner. And, and, you know, I, I'll call them out on it because you, you see her as your mother. That's a, that's a whole other thing. I mean, this is part of a, being a complete, I would actually say like, forget about the sex being able to overcome this is part of actually becoming a complete man. And this is not a comment on monogamy or polyamory. It's about being actually to be able to bring all of yourself into all of your interactions. Okay. Um, and then just to add that, uh, just to say this again, uh, women crave the other side of this because it is a natural completion. The whole thing with the monsters holding bitches. A lot of women follow that Instagram too, even though it seems very not feminist. Um, because there is something, even though it's, it's comical, right? Like you see this ogre or this King Kong holding this, this naked woman flailing. There is something about that that's appealing on a very primal, instinctual level because we've evolved to be that way. Okay, we're going to end this here uh, now with uh, integration. Um, I'm going to share, okay, and I'm going to share, well, first I'll say how I ended this uh, thing with my partner of like really trying to access my, my lust with her. Uh, I'm not saying this is not a prescription of what everyone should do, but this is something that helped me. 
I had to think, I had to go back to the body, right? Which is kind of my solution for a lot of things when your emotions get uh, confuddled is going back to sensation-based desire. And I actually had to, for a moment, I had to stop thinking about how much I love and respect my partner and like think about how hot I think she is and, and objectify her willingly because like the, the reptilian part of our nervous system where like that kind of really lustful, power-driven um, sex comes from or impulses come from has no sense of love or respect, right? Reptiles don't feel love. Um, not to say you should leave it like that because I do want to connect the whole things, everything, but I had to go there for a second. I had to think about before she and I connected emotionally, I just, I thought she was hot. I mean, I thought about like sensational things. I thought about the first time we hugged. Uh, I thought about, I, I basically objectified her. And um, when I objectified her and I thought about like, you know, the things I would do to a, a body that looked like that, I could re regain my libido. And I, as I was expressing that, and I started sending her voice messages of like, all the things I was feeling that were actually sending blood down south and being able to hold on to that lust and then then reintroduce my feeling of how I feel about her it is, is a vulnerable feeling. There's a part of me that wanted to shy away from that. It's like, ah, oh, it's like so vulnerable to, to like, you know, I mean, I'm using this image, but like bring my erection to the heart level, right? But I think that is that is the completion or that that is the synergy um, of, uh, of it in yourself. So this actually reminded me of an exercise I give guys who have issues of the same kind, like especially guys who grew up jerking off to porn a lot. Uh, there's this natural shame that builds up and a lot of guys I've spoken to, especially younger guys, I think Generation Z has this the worst because they grew up with porn and, and third wave feminism. Um, they have this feeling of like uh, sexuality is just for jerking off at home. Uh, but when I speak to a woman, when, I, when a guy like this speaks to a woman and actually is in connection or is about to say something, he's filled with so much shame that he cuts off his sexuality. So either he comes off as awkward or whatever, or maybe he even comes off as sterile. Like I know this, I'm gonna call out. I'm gonna call out my people. Like I think this is true for a lot of South Asian guys, also Asian people. But for some reason, I think South Asian guys, for some reason, can a lot of South Asian guys I've met have learned to do the 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 learned how to put up a charming facade. I met a lot of guys, especially uh, ABCDs, uh, American-born children, or I don't know, I forget. Anyway, uh, American uh, brown guys who grew up in in the West have this way of like seeming very charismatic and like everything looks good on the surface, but women can't feel them. And I've heard this from a lot of women who date brown guys. And I've heard this from brown guys. It's like, yeah, girls seem to like me. Women seem to like me. But like, there's like this lack of sexual chemistry. And I think this is a cultural thing amongst uh, certain people. I think this is true for many cultures, but I think I've noticed this the most amongst brown guys is that uh, because they feel divorced from their sexuality or their sexuality has like kind of been conditioned to be reserved for the computer screen at home, it's hard for them to bring this feeling. So an exercise that I suggest to guys in this situation is, is a training wheels exercise, not something you should do forever, is uh, thinking pornographically while actually being in connection, right? This, is not, this does not mean doing the pickup thing or saying provocative things, although the whole reason why the old school pickup uh, world, a lot of their openers were these provocative things is that these like, I don't mean this in a bad way, but maybe a little bit like these autistic guys would see guys flirting and being like, oh, when you say mean things or you say, uh, you know, girls seem to like that, women seem to like that. So you have all these like openers that all of these pickup guys have used out of context they didn't understand feeling. The whole idea behind thinking pornographically while speaking, and not to say you should do this all the time, but the idea behind it is that if you could actually feel lust in your body, and then, you know, I, I, would, I would coach guys to be graphic with it in their minds, right? Think about 
where you want your parts in her parts. Think about the things you would do. Think, I mean, actually, this is something, I'm going to say this in a second, but if you could think about the arousing image while actually saying hello, even while say, speaking about the weather with a woman, it, it'll take away this feeling of like, I need to hide my sexuality. And the thing is, uh, women will be able to feel this, right? It might even guide the interaction in some subconscious way. And also the other piece is that arousal mutes fear. Like if you get horny enough, it's really hard to also be anxious at the same time. Like there's opposite hormonal mechanisms. You go deep into predator mode, it becomes hard to feel the like, anxious prey at the same time. And I spoke about this last week with, or two weeks ago with the noradrenaline adrenaline ratio, like aggression and uh, fear don't really go together. You might get adrenaline when you're getting aroused too, but if you have too much adrenaline and no aggression, you go into prey mode and actually mutes your sexual, your sexuality. Um, it eats up your testosterone, puts you in fight or flight mode. So this might actually relate to the question we just got in, or we got earlier in, in the comments, how to open up to, open a woman to her darker side without being creepy. The first thing I would say to that is, uh, and I spoke about this more in the, in the dark, uh, the dark masculine episode is you have to get rid of the shame in yourself because if, even if you say the perfect words of like how to express yourself or bring up like a, a high consent, uh, a consent aware conversation, but you feel a lot of shame about it, it's going to come off. Like I've said this in a few episodes of like how you say something tells people how to respond to you, right? If you feel a lot of shame when you're saying things, they are going to pick up on it. Anybody, man, woman, child will pick up on this and be like, oh, if he feels ashamed about this, then I probably should judge him. And they're just going to have this feeling, right? Um, some people just gave off this thing like where if you always feel like low men on the totem pole, I would say, I would take a look at how you speak to people. Like you might be speaking in a way that uh, subconsciously cues people to not respect you because it, it comes off that you don't respect yourself. Um, but but uh, being willing to have this uh, open conversation. So all right, the question was, how to open up a woman to her darker side without being creepy? First, you have to not have that shame in yourself, which might take some work perhaps, um, but also being willing to call out all the things. I mean, this is a kind of a tactical thing, but anytime you're entering kind of a taboo situation in, in a communication, and it, a taboo could even be like just expressing your desire to someone in the mall or expressing a desire to a coworker or someone in a social group where like there is like kind of a, a mini taboo or some level of taboo, um, it's calling it out. Like showing the social awareness of like, hey, I know this is really weird, but blah, blah, blah. Actually, I had a, um, a woman uh, express some desire to me not a long ago, and you know, I, I'm in a monogamous relationship, so I said you know, I, I, I didn't requite. But she, 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 she did this in a kind of, uh, in a way where she said like, hey, I don't mean to be creepy, but, um, and like that, you know, of course that takes away the, she actually said that, right? It takes away the creepiness when she acknowledges the social situation. Um, if you can just be, if you can show that you are socially aware, it takes away the creepiness because creepiness comes from two things. One, it shows like a lack of uh, socialization, like, uh, social awareness. Like if you are, uh, if you say something super outlandish or if you, like, uh, or a, a more uh, tame example would be like, you ask out a woman in front of all of her coworkers, all of her friends that puts her in a really awkward situation because whether or not she wants to say yes, if she says yes, she feels awkward because now she's saying yes in front of all these people. If she says no, she feels awkward because she's now rejecting you in front of all these people. Like that shows a, like very poor social awareness, and like that's not that's not a that that in itself will come off as creepy because you're showing a, a lack of social awareness. 
uh, in a situation, if, if you can, the most important thing is to be able to look at the world through her perspective. So even if you're doing something that's a little transgressive, which most flirting is, to just simply say something like, hey, I know this is a random thing, or I know this is a little awkward thing, or I don't mean to be creepy by saying this. Just saying a simple social nicety like that shows that you acknowledge the situation um, and then moves forward. And you could do this with even like more intense things of like, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I had this feeling that's true. And then you bring up the dark sexual thing. You're like, I know this is super random, but are you into this thing? If you, that's the first thing. And the second thing, which, which preludes that is being seen. Um, in uh, approach situations, to look at a woman in a way that you don't want her to see you, that's always creepy. Like to stare at a woman behind, from behind a bush so you could jerk off to her image later, that's always creepy. But to look at a woman, letting her see that you're looking at her might be uncomfortable. It might be awkward. You might get rejected from that too. But that in itself is not creepy because to show, to let a woman see you seeing her, essentially to be vulnerable, to actually connect is never creepy. It might, it might not be wanted. She might reject you, but she won't be creeped out because the, the, any, like any time that you're, you're seeming like you want to see her without uh, her seeing you shows that you're up to something uh, no good um, or to show a lack of social calibration also shows that. Both of those things trigger a feeling of not safety. Going back to uh, the, the comment that the guy in the masculine underground uh, said that I love is that darkness and sexuality is a battle between grounded safety and shame. And to translate to this moment, it's like uh, showing that she is actually safe emotionally and physically, but you're willing to push the edge, like go all the way to the edge of danger. Um, okay. Next thing is uh, playing with, uh, just want to make sure, all right, time. Okay. Uh, playing with dark expression. So the simple thing, going back to the fear of like a guy being like, oh my God, if I let out my darkness, I might hurt people. Well, there's a way that you can play with the feeling, still be true to the feeling without doing the literal thing, right? Maybe you have a desire to rape. Maybe you have a desire to slap people in the face. Maybe you have a desire to do weird stuff, right? Or the stuff that people wouldn't like. One, I would actually challenge that. I think most guys who don't express their desires don't realize most, no, I shouldn't say most, many women want the, the, the complimentary thing that most guys want. Or this is true for everything. It's true for all sexual orientations and gender, or whatever. Like uh, a lot of guys have this weird, uh, I mean, not weird. It, they have this desire to choke. A lot of women want to be choked in bed. It, it seems like a counterintuitive thing, but if you listen to that last section I just talked about, like it's an instinctual thing of being consumed, of being controlled, of, of being with a predator, right? That in itself is attractive. Obviously not choking her to death. No one wants no one woman no one woman wants to be choked to death but being willing to go to that place can be attractive because of all the reasons i, I listed um the bdsm world is a source of a lot of therapy for people because it allows you to structure a situation okay okay for the next hour for the next 30 minutes we're going to explore this kind of scene i'm going to take on this role you're going to take on this role we have our safe words i know that can be a little uh, cynical or clinical to a lot of people i mean i don't particularly like having that scene structured like that. But if you have a desire that could be physically dangerous or emotionally dangerous, that can be a place for you to express it, if only as a way to let your beast out for a walk after it's been caged up for many years. Uh, maybe you do that, do, do scenes like that for a few times and you're like, oh, you know what? I actually feel confident in my sexuality or I'm with a partner who we, we trust each other that we can explore this power dynamic. Or we can explore this this type of impact play or, or whatever the thing is. I don't know what your thing is. Or this role play that is taboo but in a safe space and I feel comfortable with it. 
and we don't have to list all the things. Obviously, the more dangerous you're doing, if you're doing with stuff that could be physically dangerous, you should be more structured to keep people safe. You, you and her, and or whoever you're playing with. Um, and and actually, I'll say, you know, a lot of like when I speak about BDSM and like power dynamics, uh, SJWs and feminists seem to get mad at me sometimes. But I got into BDSM not for my desire because I was so disconnected from this part of myself. I was so disconnected from my my darkness. It led to physical impotency and emotional apathy. I got into it because so many women that I met were asking for it. Like so many women, even when I was in the matriarch, especially when I was in the matriarchal sex club with all these women who are in their power and fully expressed and connected with their feminine. A lot of women were like kind of yell at me like, Ruan, you need to be more dominant. Like you need to take control of me. Like I want you to, I want you to be more of a savage. And like, I was like, oh shit, like, I have to learn how to do this stuff. But as I did it, <laughs> I did realize that this was a part of myself that was very true and potent. And I've been shoving down for so long and I didn't realize how much I like to be a, a friggin' savage sometimes. Oh, and, I, and, and uh, so this is actually one of the first lessons in uh, the Mask and Archetype Challenge. Uh, in my 21 day archetype program, which is looking at your random interests, right? Or, or things that are drawn to in media or in entertainment. And I was speaking about this with uh, one of my buddies who's uh, binge watching The Sopranos for the first time. Because when I, because the things we watch and consume, the people we spend time with obviously influence us subconsciously. I remember when I first uh, binge watched The Sopranos, I was in college. And every time someone irritated me during that, during that, you know, maybe a couple weeks that I was binge watching all the Sopranos, every time someone irritated me, like if my, if my roommate left his dishes in the sink, my first instinct would be to ball up my fist and be like, I'm just going to beat the shit out of him. Because that's what Tony Soprano always did, right? And, and I realized one of the reasons why I was drawn to Tony Soprano and later Breaking Bad and Fight Club and things like that was that they were demonstrating in a dramatic format, in a psychodrama, the thing that was repressed in myself. So when we look at why Fight Club is so compelling to this generation or to the, you know, the last 20 years, or I don't remember when it came out, I think it was 20 years ago, uh, why it's so compelling is that so many men of this generation, is actually in the movie, like we're a generation, we're the middle children of history, no wars to fight, blah, blah. Men of this generation feel underexpressed in their violent side, in their anarchistic side, in their chaotic side. So a, a film like Fight Club, a character like Tony Soprano, Walter White, is so compelling because they're doing the thing that our emotions want us to play out that we haven't played out. So even even watching things like that can be a healthy catharsis. I mean, that's where catharsis, I mean, that's the, why the term was coined. Uh, last practical tips, I and mean, this is more of, this is less of an actionable thing, but it's more, it is a little more conceptual, is going back to this chaotic, chaos magic uh, perspective on duality, is trying on a belief that everything is okay. I mean, this, this, I spoke about this a lot in the, in, the, in the sexual shame episode is you have to learn how to accept what comes out of you. All the things that you're ashamed of, everything from your weird sexual things, your, your uh, antisocial impulses, your awkward moments. Like, I mean, the thing that I often like feel myself contracting around are memories where I told a bad joke or like I, I tried to be funny, but it came out as mean. Like those things like, ah, oh, whenever I think about it, I feel shitty. But those are the moments I need to specifically love myself and release and expand around because if I let myself shame myself there, it's gonna mute my, my expression. It's gonna lower the fidelity, lower the resolution of my reality and, and push me into apathy. So like those are the moments you have to specifically validate yourself. Doesn't mean that you, you know, maybe you're into snuff films or you know, something like really terrible like that and uh, it's hard to accept that. Not to say that you should watch them or they should even try to or think about them necessarily, but to at least tell yourself that you're not a bad person for thinking that way. Right? I've mentioned this before, but I had a, I had a friend once who 
um, got in his head. He, he by accident watched a, a child porn thing, and it was really dark, right? Like he by accident watched it one time, and because he thought it was so terrible, of course, I mean, it, most of us think it's terrible. It's, one, it's maybe the number one taboo in our, our society. He, he couldn't stop thinking about it. And he kept shaming himself for looking at this one time. He's like, oh my God, I'm this terrible pedophile. And he kept shaming him, shaming him. And the more he shamed himself, the more he, he would think about this thing. And he went this vicious cycle of thinking about this thing he didn't want to think about because he didn't want to think about it. If he just like been like, okay, I saw it, whatever. And he can be okay with him and like love himself there. He probably would have stopped thinking about it. I think that is ultimately what happened, but it took a long time. He put himself through a lot of misery because he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't do that. Uh, I missed a comment a bit ago. Someone said, uh, reminds me of Zan Perion talking about balancing your higher energy, empathy, and charm and charisma with a low energy of being sexual, penetrating, and cocky. Yeah. And actually, this reminds me, I meant to mention this. Uh, one of the first bits of, one of the first uh, thought leaders in the dating advice world was um, Eben Pagan, who went by the name David D'Angelo, who wrote the book series Double Your Dating. His uh, whole dating philosophy wasn't particularly nuanced, it was based on this idea of being cocky and funny. Uh, being cocky, showing that you have that uh, dark willingness, I mean dark in a sense, willingness to transgress, to be uh, going to taboos, to be violent, to say the thing that's not okay socially to say, but also being funny because the funniness is uh, what smooths it out. If you could be, if you're just cocky, you're an asshole. If you're just funny in a self-deprecating way, you're not, you're not showing potency, but if you could be cocky and funny, that is like a formula of attractiveness in, in a sense. Uh, I mean, at least it's one way to look at it. Um, Oh, and I do want to go back to one thing. I might make a whole episode on this because it's a little bit, it's, it's one step removed from this, this topic. But going back to Peter Carroll and his chaos magic perspective um, on the mind, um, you know, he was speaking about how every emotion, I read that quote earlier, every emotion uh, has a dual nature. I mean, uh, joy only exists because of sorrow, blah, blah, blah. Um, laughter is another quote from him. I'm going to pull up. Laughter is the highest emotion because it, contain, it can contain any of the others from ecstasy to grief. Ecstasy to grief, <clears throat> laughter has no opposite. His viewpoint is when it comes to explore, exploring the unconscious, laughter is the highest emotion uh, because in its, I mean, laughter is the recognition of everything as it is. Like when something makes us laugh, very often things that makes us laugh are taboo things that we admit. It's like, it's like when we laugh at a taboo thing, we are reclaiming it. That's why sexist humor, racist humor, uh, you know, things that are not politically correct things are what are, make us laugh typically. Um, and, and everyone has, obviously, humor is subjective, but a person's, uh, what, what a person considers funny usually is on just on the edge of what his, his or her ego thinks is okay, right? So going back to that monophistic view of categorizing things as good and evil, what you probably laugh at is right on the edge. <clears throat> uh, which is why, which why comedians are always the tellers of truth, right? They, they're the ones who identify what is the edge of good and evil perception for society. So if you look at someone who has a terrible sense of humor, usually people with a terrible sense of humor are people who see like, this is good, that my, only my little worldview is good and everything is terrible and you can't talk about everything so they laugh at really dumb stuff that, is in, uh, that to those of us with better senses of humor don't think is that funny. Whereas for those of us who have better senses of humor, in my opinion, um, have a, have, are much more accepting of, of reality. So we can laugh at all the things that piss off the social justice warriors. My opinions only. But if you look at the people who identify as social justice warriors, pretty much uh, hands down, they have terrible senses of humor. Perhaps that's a dark thing to say, but that's how I feel. Um, and the last bit I'll say is, uh, well, with that, I mean, relating to, I'll sum this entire episode up. 
with uh, seeing people as sexual beings is one, right? A lot, a lot of guys who go into Madonna horror uh, or have issues bringing their sexuality, they inherently believe that, and I have this as well a little bit, uh, that sex is this dark, dirty thing. I mean, sometimes it is. Um, and that's to bring that, to like bring that defiling feeling to a woman is always bad. And, and our culture reinforces that. A lot of, you know, a lot of like, you know, I mean, I'm not, I mean, obviously men have been violating women and doing bad things that I'm not condoning in any way. But to shy away from that is also impotence. There is a, there is a, there is a, a sweet spot of tension where that transgression actually feels good, where it's like, past the line where the ego thinks is okay, but still within the bounds of what the body thinks is okay. That is the area that you want to live because that's what connects, I mean, to, to, to shift our axis this way, that's what connects the light, love and light empathy side with the, the dark reptilian side that makes sex particularly uh, exciting. Or like that's one, you know, that gives it a full range. I mean, the love and light stuff is nice. But I, yeah, I've noticed this in myself, like when I fall in love with someone, it becomes a lot easier to have that love as light Love and light, and that sweet butterflies and angels singing kind of sex, uh, where you're making eye contact and there's soulfulness, and that's really lovely and great. That's only one kind of sex, and to lose lose that reptilian side is like it's like cutting off half the colors on your color palette. That's not fun. Someone asked uh, who is the author I've talked about. That is Peter Carroll, and the book that I referenced and whose quotes I I read in the beginning of the episode is from the book Liber Null. It's a book on chaos magic. And actually, of all of the mystical writings I've read recently, I didn't mean to make that alliteration, um, I really appreciate his. I mean, he does use mystical language, which, you know, maybe turns off some people, but there's like almost like a one-to-one connection with like Jungian perspectives. If you just change the terms he uses, I find it to be very practical. Um, And I have another episode coming out that I recorded already on Gnosis, which is the word for like no-mindedness of pure focus. It's a really good book. I'm probably going to make a whole episode on it. Actually, I reached out to him to have him on the podcast. Um, but I don't know. He, he's, he's in his 80s now, as far as I know. I don't, I don't know if he still does podcasts. Um, okay. I think that's it. I have some other notes that I scribbled, but I can't read my handwriting sometimes. Sign of a sociopath, people tell me. I'm just kidding. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm not kidding. Uh, yeah, so last announcements. I, I, actually, if there's any other questions, uh, I'll, I'll stay up for a few more minutes in case you have questions. In the meantime, while perhaps you're thinking of your questions, uh, oh, actually, Mike, one question for you, for the people who are watching live. What should I call this episode? Because I went through a few different uh, titles. Uh, if you did catch, I kept changing the title on the Facebook Live. Should I call it Sexual Shadow, Beast in the Bedroom, Overriding the Madonna Whore Complex. Uh, I had a oh, Monsters Holding Bitches. That was another. <laughs> I'm probably not going to call it that um, because, uh, I don't know. Those kinds of words seem to get me uh, shadow banned. I don't know if that's a thing for real. Um, also, just had an episode with uh, uh, Christian Graugart from BJJ Globetrotter. That was a great episode. You can check that out. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, Jack Donovan, who wrote the book uh, Way of Men on. I've been excited to speak with him. Also, the Masculine Archetype Challenge is still available. It's always available uh, at ruando.com slash archetype. I'm revamping the site, so it's going to look differently soon. But from now until the end of the year, you can still get a free coaching session if you sign up for that program. Uh, it's the least expensive way to have a, a conversation with me. And I'm also proud of the program. Um, <clears throat> oh, someone's asking me about the men's group. I actually, I've, I've put that to the side, but uh, actually there's another question. For anyone who listens to the recording or who's in the Masculine Underground group, I someone asked me, one of my clients asked me if I could just, uh, through the Facebook group, I could organize like these meetup groups. I won't always be in them because of time, uh, time 
because of time zones. <laughs> but uh, if I put up some sort of online men's group, I, I had this idea before COVID, but then I was like, oh, I mean, who, who wants to like meet up on the internet uh, when you can meet up with guys in real life who are like-minded? Every big city has people or the opportunity for men's group. But then COVID happened and it's like, oh, well, actually Zoom calls are the only way a lot of people are meeting. Um, <clears throat> someone said, call it the sexual shadow worlds. Yeah, sexual shadow seems to be the, the phrase that people... Beast in the Bedroom doesn't really describe it. Most people don't know what the Madonna Horror Complex is. Uh, yeah, someone laughed at Monsters Holding Bitches. I like Monsters Holding Bitches, but I don't know. We'll see. I'll put that in the description at least. All right, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any other questions, you can still comment the questions on the live later. I will answer them in text format if you're in the Masculine Underground group. If you're listening to the, if the recording of this, um, and you're a guy, please join the Masculine Underground group as we have some uh, quality threads going on about these topics or different topics related to masculinity. If you're a woman, sorry, it's no, no girls allowed. Um, okay, someone likes beasts in the bedrooms. Red Tide, I don't know. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, and my final public service announcement, if you're not watching this live, if, I mean, this, this episode goes up on YouTube and all the video sites, but I'm always going to say this. There's no reason to watch this uh, video. I am not doing anything exciting in video. I'm honored you want to look at my face, but much rather you subscribe to the Ronald Podcast, put this in your earbuds, go for a walk, walk your dog, do some chores, build a birdhouse, do anything that's not sit at your computer and sit stare at your screen. And it's the absolute worst thing for people to do with their time when you could be listening to all of this by audio format. So that's all. Um, yeah, if you have any questions, uh, comments away. And uh, thanks for watching, everyone who's watching and will watch. All right, goodbye.